Well, good evening. It is always such a joy to be with you, an honor and a privilege. It's always a privilege to be at this pulpit. Not many have that joy and that honor to be here, so I count it a tremendous blessing. And I think it's a pretty unique blessing that I can not only be here at this esteemed sacred desk, but also on an occasion when there's no carpet. Not many have the opportunity to do that. And like Austin Duncan mentioned this morning, the floor is sticky, which is good. That will prevent me from falling into the baptismal. I'm always concerned about that. In fact, I asked Nathan Busnitz what he does when he he thinks he's going to fall, and he just says, Abner, you just got to hold on to the pulpit for dear life. So I've taken his advice from that ever since, and I've never fallen in. I'm very thankful. I, I would be one. Since I'm such a klutz, I would fall in. Well, the Lord's grace is always made perfect and seen perfection in our weakness. And so I'm not only praying that I don't fall into the baptismal, but I'm praying that my voice holds out this evening. As you can tell, it's a little bit run down just after a, a little bug or whatnot. But we'll see. His grace is all sufficient. And that is so appropriate because that is the nature of faith as we depend on him. He does it all. We just depend on him. And so to that end, let's begin our time with the word of prayer, shall we? Our God and Father, we ask that you would renew our minds this evening and renew them in the truth of your word, as always you do. And you have revealed your word to that very end. And may this time in this section of Genesis give us clarity on issues that we might have been confused about, though they are so basic and essential to our walk with you. May it not only provide clarity, but may it also be, therefore, a clear window into the realization of your sufficiency and your greatness and the majesty and the glory of your grace. May all these things and more be accomplished, and may we be in awe of the works that you have done, and may it compel us in our hearts both to worship you and to trust in you every single day and in every single breath of our lives. Be with us now, O God, in your word. Grant us joy as we go through these things. And may it be that you are honored through it all. In your name we pray, amen. As we continue our walk through Genesis, it is good to remind ourselves of all the glorious things our God has driven, that he has unveiled and compelled a plan starting from the beginning. And in the beginning, he has declared and revealed his glory, that he is creator and we are not. He is creator and we are all creation. That is the magisterial distinction between God and everyone else. He is God and we are not. He is transcendent and supreme. And he has announced that by the way he has created this world. And he will demonstrate that by the way he redeems, showing that nothing will stop him. Nothing conquers him. Nothing hinders him. He will make all things right in the end, showing that he will prevail over everything, just as he has originally declared. And that Redemption will be accomplished by his promise of Genesis 3.15. 
that he will preserve a line of the seed culminating in the seed that will smash the serpent's head, even though at cost to himself. And so God, as we recalled through the opening chapters of Genesis, does wondrous things for this plan to proceed forward. He reconfigures the entire world even through the flood so that his plan will march forward. And he even divides humanity into different nations, nations counteracting nations, so that his plan will go forward. And with the advent of nations, the requirement comes in and the opportunity comes in for one nation to make an international impact, one nation to witness to all other nations. And that's why the nation of Israel exists. And so God has raised up one nation, not just randomly, not just for no purpose, but for the explicit purpose to witness to all the other nations, to declare his agenda of Genesis 3.15, so that the world will be informed of the glory of God and all that he will do therein. Well, that requires that the nation be ingrained with certain truths, that the DNA of this nation, the foundation of this nation, be ingrained with certain theological realities that they can demonstrate and declare to the entire watching world. And so as God raises up the patriarchs, the foundational family of the nation of Israel, he is going to ingrain in them certain truths even as he advances his plan. In fact, both go hand in hand. It is by ingraining in them these truths that his plan advances so that Israel will declare to the world the whole truth about the plan of God and redemption. And one of those basic theological truths that we are now going to see in the life of Abraham, the founding father, shall we say, of the nation of Israel, that foundational truth is faith. Faith. We know that faith is absolutely so intrinsic and so basic to the Christian life. It is the response to the gospel. It is the response to Genesis 3.15. It is the response to God's Son. We are to believe. Acts 2, Peter charges the people around him to believe. Acts 16, the famous phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we know this, for it is by grace through faith you are saved. We know that belief is absolutely essential, that faith is absolutely intrinsic and basic. But because of that, the term faith, the idea of believing, it's been overused. It has become ubiquitous in our society, and the original idea, the original charge of believing in God about the gospel, or believe the Lord Jesus Christ, it starts to be de-evolved. People talk about, well, you just got to believe, not in Jesus, you got to believe in yourself. That's what people say all the time. Believe in yourself. And then it goes and shifts from there. People say, well, okay, okay. You just got to have faith. Have faith. They don't even tell you what to have faith in. You just have to have some. Whatever that means. And then, of course, Disney, being Disney, their mantra in a lot of their movies is, just believe. What does that even mean? And what will even happen if you do that? What, what does it mean to just believe? 
as if it's some kind of magical feeling that will make a magical kingdom. What does just believe mean? And what has happened is faith in Christ, which is very defined and very specific, has become completely amorphous. We don't know what we believe in anymore. We don't know who we believe anymore. We don't even think that's necessary. You don't even have to focus on an object. You just have to have this feeling, this sensation, this idea of faith. And it's an absolutely amorphous notion. And so what has become basic and what is essential to the Christian life because of overuse has become confused. And we have no idea what faith is anymore. That's why we often wonder, people ask us, is faith a work? If you've ever asked that question, then what we're confused about is not what works are. We're pretty good on that. We just don't know what faith is. And sometimes people wonder, well, is faith something we do? Is faith something that reflects on us? How can it relate to work? Is, is faith just some intellectual exercise? And, and the questions continue to pile up. And what it demonstrates is even though this is so basic, so essential, so fundamental, we don't know what faith is. Just to illustrate, I was recently preaching on Hebrews 11, and it dawned on me, dawned on me. Hebrews, the book, is about Christ. Chapter 1, it's about the glories of Christ. Chapter 2, the glories of Christ. Chapter 3, the glories of Christ. Chapter 4, guess what it's about? The glories of Christ. Chapter 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, and 9, and 10. Guess what it's about? The glories of Christ. No one debates about it. Everyone knows. Supremacy of Christ. He's a better priest, better Moses, better in all ways, better than the angels. We know that. Better promises, better covenant, better everything. Christ is that. Amen. And then you say, yes, it's about Christ. That's the book. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And then you get to Hebrews 11. And then we say, what is it about? And we all say, faith. It's about me. What? You think after 10 chapters of the author of Hebrews saying over and over and over, it's about Christ. It's all about Christ. He's the supreme one. You fix your eyes to him. You focus on him. And then in chapter 11, he says, turn your eyes on yourself. What's going on there? And the reason that that strikes us as odd and the reason we can't figure it out is not because we didn't understand Hebrews 1 through 10. It's because we didn't understand faith. We didn't understand faith. Let me give you the summary answer here because it's so important for us to understand faith. In Romans 4.16, Paul says this, that it is by grace so that it would be by faith. That it is by faith so that it would be by grace. And you say, well, what does that mean exactly? It means this. Faith and grace are two sides to the same coin. That just like In our human experience, we see the sun rise and fall, but that is the human experience of what objectively is happening as the earth rotates around the sun. In the same way, faith is just the human experience that God is doing it all. That is what is going on. Faith is you relying upon God to do it all, and therefore God does it all, therefore he gets all the credit, and therefore faith is not a work. If you say, 
okay, I, I think I'm getting this better, but, but I need some help. Let me give you the following illustration. Let's say we were in a building together, and it was on fire. And, you know, you got knocked unconscious. I ran out of the room because I'm scared. And Mark Zakovich is there, my boss. And he sees you in the fire. And he runs back in. And because he's much better suited to do this because he actually works out and I don't, he picks you up while you're unconscious and you're resting in his arms as he rushes you out of the burning building and saves you. And this, of course, makes the headline news. All the paparazzi are around with all the news cameras and news trucks and news anchors. And they all want to interview you about this dramatic deliverance. So great a salvation. And they say, how'd you get out of that burning building alive? Sit up. You've regained consciousness. And you say, well, it was a heroic effort. Very heroic effort. Yeah. How did it happen? I trusted Mark. That's what you said. I, I leaned into his arms. If I didn't lean hard enough, if I, didn't, if I didn't lean, if I just even eased up on my leaning on him, I wouldn't have made it out alive. We should have a parade in my honor. Now look, Mark would never do this to you, but in my story he does. He throw you back in the fire. Is the reason that the person got out of the burning building because he leaned on Mark? Who saved him? Mark did. All faith is, is you leaning on the one who does it all. Faith does nothing in and of itself. The object of faith does everything. And the entire point of faith, when it is true faith, it amplifies that it is all grace. Faith alone is just another way of saying grace alone. Because faith alone is the human expression that God does it all. That we bring nothing to the table, that we depend solely on him, and that we rest in what he has done. And that is the only reason why we survive or we die. It is because of him. And therefore, faith in and of itself does not save us. God saves us through faith because faith connects us with the Savior. That's the way faith works. And when you understand that, then you understand why faith isn't a work because faith isn't doing anything. It is relying on the God who does everything. That's why faith can't just be intellectual. When you lean or rely on someone, that's not an intellectual act. That's why Hebrews 11 is still about Christ. Because the whole point of faith is not about you, but the object of your faith, who is Christ. And so Hebrews 11 is saying, don't forget, you trust Christ He'll get you home. You trust Christ, he'll make you right. You trust Christ, he will sustain you. Look at all of Old Testament history. There is a testimony that faith is sufficient, not because in and of itself it's sufficient, but because the object of faith is sufficient. Hebrews 11 is still about the Lord Jesus Christ and his absolute supremacy and absolute satisfaction in him. That is why faith even produces works. 
Faith never comes alone. Because if you're resting in God and God is doing all the activity, regenerating and driving and empowering, then of course we would expect to see transformation because that's what God is doing. Therefore, faith, all it magnifies is that it is all of God. It is all of God. God does it all. And one of the best ways to understand this basic idea and its power is to understand the life of Abraham because God intended it to be that way. He wanted Israel to understand that. He wanted his people to know this. Genesis 15, 6, we are familiar with this text. It says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We know that. And that is the theme verse of Abraham's life. That is the theme verse of Genesis 12 through 25. And with that, what we have is a primer on faith. A primer on faith in these chapters. And the way these chapters break down because God is advancing his plan of Genesis 3.15 is that we have three major sections because God has revealed to Abraham in what we call the Abrahamic covenant, a special set of guarantees God gave Abraham and the nation of Israel. We have three major promises, land, seed, and blessing. And those promises are not random. They tie directly into Genesis 3.15. The land promise is reflective that Israel needs to have a spot on the planet to witness to all the other nations. And also on top of that, it is a testimony that God will plant a nation and make them almost like a new Eden in the end, the center of the world, of a renewed world, where God can show definitively through them he has made everything right. And so the land promise ties into both the means of Israel announcing things to the world as well as God's end game of making all things righteous once again. The seed promise, the second one, that ties directly into Genesis 3.15, the preservation of a line of seed culminating in the Messiah. And the word blessing, that God promises blessing among the nations through the line of Abraham. It goes back to Genesis 1. What did God do to creation? He blessed it. And one day through Israel, ultimately through the Messiah that comes through Israel, the seed of Genesis 3.15, he will bless the world again, making it not only just nice and right, but all things glorious, perfect, wonderful, a goodness that exceeds anything we could imagine or think. And so God entrusts these three promises that both secure the means and the end of his plan of Genesis 3.15 to Abraham in this covenant. And as he cultivates these realities in Abraham's life, he needs to train Abraham to believe them, to have faith in God. And so those are the three points for this evening. And with that, here's the first one, the land promise, Genesis 12 through 13. Genesis 12 through 13, the land promise. Let's see how God instills faith in Abraham about the land. The very opening of Genesis 12 is a call to faith. It is a call to trust God. It is a call because Yahweh tells Abraham and puts Abraham in a situation that completely demands trust in God alone, that completely extends him beyond what he is able to do. Yahweh commands him, go from your land. Go to a place that is unknown. 
Go to a place that is outside of yourself. Put to death, so to speak, one life that you had in one land, which you had in Babylon earlier, and now move to a new land and have a new life. Total transformation, total change, total shift, and totally outside, so to speak, your comfort zone. Speaking of which, God emphasizes human effort, human resource cannot play into this. That's why he has to go and emphasize that it is from your kin. You're going to leave any resource you possibly had of your family. You're going to leave your father's house, the next phrase, which is your protection. You will not have that anymore. The only thing you will have, God says, is the land which I, that is Yahweh, will show you. Are you willing to jettison everything you had, everything you know, every resource, every work, every protection, and get rid of all that so that it is truly God alone? God alone. This is the question of faith. And here is Abraham's response, and and I love this. Before getting there, let's just make one quick note. Do you notice in verse two and three how many times God says, I will? I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Do you notice what is God reminding Abraham? This is not by you. No one accomplishes these promises, humanly speaking. It is I will, I will, I will, I will. God alone, God alone. Why is it faith alone? Because it's God alone. Faith alone has to be because God alone. And there's no human work. There's no human merit to accomplish it. And so what does Abraham do? Verse four, Abraham goes exactly as Yahweh commanded him, as exactly Yahweh spoke to him. You know what faith does? It produces exact obedience. And not only that, notice, if I was Abraham, if I was Abram at this time, I, I, I might think, this is a huge risk. And what do you do with risk? Well, you diversify. You, you have backup plans. You have contingencies. So I'll do a scouting mission to Canaan. And if it looks good, then I'll bring my family. I'll send for them. You know, they can come after me. Is that what Abraham does? No. Abram, all he does is he immediately takes with him Lot and his wife. There's no backup plan. There's no contingency. And you might think, well, if, if, I, if I was Abram and I wanted to, if I was facing risk, I might try to manipulate the situation and just kind of leave a little bit of a nest egg behind. In case I lose it all, at least I can go back and restart and I have something. Have some savings behind. Notice what the next phrase says. That he, he not only brings, he not only takes Sarah, his wife, and Lot, verse 5, he takes everything everything that he possessed, every person that he has, and they went. What does this show you? It shows you in a powerful way the nature of faith. It is faith alone and God alone, and faith is total. There is no reservation. There is no qualification. There is no hesitation. There is no, I want a backup plan. There is no human effort to try to secure something your own way and try to bypass around God. It is all or nothing, and faith says it is all God's. Everything I have, everything I am, everything I believe in, it is his. 
faith alone, and faith is total. That is the nature of faith. And faith is not just total. Faith trusts God for all. We, we can see that in verses 6 and 7. Abraham goes into the very place that God requires him to go, the land of Canaan, the area of Shechem, and he walks about this land. Why? Because he's trusting God to give him all of it. He has no say. He has no manipulation in this regard. He's just relying upon God to do it all. And God appears, verse 7, and says, I will give you this land. I will give. Notice that language again. I will give. This is all God. And so to acknowledge that truth, what does Abram do? He doesn't start building houses. He doesn't start planting flags that say, this is my turf. He doesn't do any of that. Here's what he does. He builds altars. He builds altars. Why? Because everything is focused on who? God. That's what faith is about. Not my effort, not my manipulation, not my schemes. That has nothing to do with faith. Faith is always about the object of faith, the God who says, I will. So Abram builds altars to that God to point everyone to him. That is faith. Faith is alone. Faith is total. Faith looks to God. Faith is for not just the part, but the whole. That is the nature of faith. But God tests this. He's been cultivating this in Abram's life, providentially guiding him through this entire experience. But God tests him. Verse 10, there's a famine in the land. The very land that God said, this is your land. This is the land I will give to you. There is a famine there. But instead of staying, where does, what does Abram do? He goes down to Egypt. What should he have done? He should have stayed. Why? Because God said, this is the land I'm giving to you. And what's the point? It will happen no matter what. Do you believe God over your own circumstance? That's the question. Abram didn't. So he goes down and he starts to use man's reasoning, a sense of pragmatism to manipulate his way to survive and have the promise. And one level of compromise affects another level of compromise. And as a result, he comes up with this completely harebrained scheme. Tell Sarai, we know this. It's so bad. He says, just pretend you're my sister. You think, what? Why would you tell your wife that ever on so many different levels? You know, Hebrews 11 says Sarah had to have faith. You know one reason why? Abraham. So, (laughs) Abraham does this. And it seems like it's working. The deception is working. The human manipulation appears to be successful. Abram is getting more property and more people under his household. He's growing. But here's the danger. That's the line of the seed. And the line of the seed is about to be corrupted. This is catastrophic if it goes wrong in the plan of God. And so God intervenes. He intervenes. He steps in. There are plagues, which works out exactly what he said. Blessed are those who bless you, but cursed are those who curse you. And that is exactly what God enacts here. And the Egyptians are foiled in a perhaps ignorant attempt to corrupt the messianic line and Sarah is revealed to be not just a sister, but a wife. And therefore, the whole thing 
is foiled, but, and the line is preserved, and Abram is sent back home. And do you know what he does? The moment he gets home, he builds an altar. Why? Because he realizes, the only reason I got out of this, the only reason I could survive, the only reason everything did not just completely collapse is because of God. He learns faith. He learns faith in God alone. Abraham's far from perfect. In fact, most of the time that you'll find in Genesis with all these tests of faith, he fails at least one every time in every series. He's not perfect, but God is sanctifying him. And so God continues his plan. He wants to make Abraham a great nation. He has multiplied Abraham and to the extent that he, that is Abram and Lot, they have grown so much that they can no longer be in the same area. You know this story. And so now they have to split. And the question is, who gets what land? Who goes where? And Abram allows Lot to have first choice. That's an act of faith. Did Abram learn his lesson? And the answer is, yes, he did. But don't just focus on Abram. Focus on the God who taught him that lesson because that is the victory of God there, that God would instill in Abram such faith. By the way, Lot looks over a land, and it says this in Genesis 13, 10, that the area around Sodom and Gomorrah at that time, it says this, it was like the garden of Yahweh. It was like the garden of Eden, Genesis 13, 10. Of course you choose the garden of Eden over a barren landscape unless... You truly trust that God will do it all. And that is what faith says. God will do it all. What we learn in this opening chapters of of Abram's life, we learn that Abram, at no point by trusting God and by certainly no ability of his own, it only makes things worse for him, His faith and his works even, they do not secure the promise. They do not accomplish the promise. You say, how do you know that? Because he never has a piece of property at this moment. He's just a nomad wandering through the land. Faith and the works that he did didn't do anything. But what he did do, not by works, but by faith, is this. He trusted in the God who would do it all. He trusted in the God who would do it all. That's the nature of faith, and that tells us what faith is and what faith is not. Faith is not a work that by itself, and I stress that, by itself can achieve anything. Faith in Abraham's life by itself did not achieve the promises. God achieves the promises. But what faith is then? It is the complete reliance upon the God who does it all. That's why faith alone is grace alone. That is why they are absolutely interconnected. And that is why faith is the human perspective of God doing it all. That is what is going on. You can see it in his life. He is depending on the God who says, I will, I will, I will, I will. In fact, even at the end of chapter 13, God reintroduces that to him. I will, all this land which you see I will give to you, chapter 13, verse 15. And just as this is in Abraham's life, so it is in salvation. So it is in salvation. In salvation, God does it all. We don't work, and our faith is not even a work. Why? Because all our faith does 
is magnify that God does it all. That's it. That's how salvation works. When we come to Christ, we don't bring any merit. We don't bring any effort. We don't bring any work. All we do is rely on him to do it all. And him doing it all is grace. And us relying on him to do it all is faith. And faith then does nothing to accomplish salvation in and of itself because God is the one doing it all. It is all by grace through faith. And this doesn't just happen relative to believing in the gospel and trusting in God for salvation. It happens in sanctification. That's what's going on in Hebrews 11. We know, yes, that we are to work and we are to labor hard and we are to put to death sin, but we all know that it is by faith. Ultimately, we are resting on God. It is exactly like Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, we know that we are to work out our salvation, but what is true at the same time? That God is the one who works in us to will and to do. It is for this very reason that Paul in Galatians, a book that establishes the nature of sanctification, reminds us that ultimately we must say, it is not I, but Christ in me. Why? because we always rest in God alone. God taught Abraham, it is by faith alone. There is no work, there is no manipulation. Anytime you try to do that, it just makes things worse, like Abram and his wife. All that happens when we introduce works is disaster. Rather, we rely upon God. And this is a basic lesson for salvation and for the life of sanctification. It is faith alone, faith alone. And God taught that to Abram about the land, about the land. Well, there's another point. Having established and helped Abraham to see that he must trust in God alone for the land promise, and that the land promise is yes and amen, not because of Abram's effort at all, but because of God alone, God now tests him and cultivates in his life about faith concerning the seed, the seed. This is at the end of Genesis 13. Notice verse 16, God says, I will establish your seed like the dust of the earth. You won't be able to count. You won't be able to number the dust of the earth. You won't be able, therefore, to number your own seed. There is a transition happening here from the promise of land to the promise of seed. And that totally makes sense because what is Abraham supposed to believe in? Faith is all about the object of faith and we have seen that it is about God. That is what Abraham has already been learning through Genesis 12 and 13. But now we need to hone in on that. Now we need to detail that and specify that. And that is where the promise of seed comes in. After all, that's exactly what Genesis 3.15 is about. And so from chapters 14, through 22, God will inculcate into Abraham, do you believe the promise about the seed? Do you understand the promise of the seed? And for this very reason, chapter 14 follows exactly after chapter 13. And notice, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what this chapter is about. Chapter 14, verse 1, king of Shinar, king Eliezer, king Elam, king of the Goyim, king of the nations. Look at verse 2. What do they do? You have Bera, the king of Sodom, and you have the king of Gomorrah, and you have the king of Adamah, and you have the king of Zeboyim, and you have the king of Bela. And then look at chapter 14, verse 5. 
you have more mentions of all these different kings. And then in verse 8, you have mention of more kings. King of Sodom again, king of Gomorrah, king of Adamah, king of Zeboim, king of Bela. And then you have verse 10, more kings. And then in verse 17, more kings. In fact, guess where they all meet? It's the valley of Sheva, which is what? The valley of the king. I wonder what this passage is about. It's about a bunch of kings. And on one hand, the fact that Abraham can be involved in this situation with all these kings implies that he's a what? King. And God is working out his promise. But more than that, what God is showing here and why God is talking about kings after king after king after king is what he is emphasizing is this. Do you want to understand my seed promise? Do you want to understand Genesis 3.15? The seed will be a king. That's the point. And right as you understand this, king, 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 scattered throughout this entire passage, then in verse 18, what do we have? You have Melchizedek. And his name means king of righteousness. In a passage about kings, you have the introduction of a king. Now, to be clear, some people think that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. There is nothing in Genesis 14 that would suggest that. Even in fact, in Psalm 110, we have evidence that would go against it because David says that Jesus will be in the order of Melchizedek. It would be a tautology to say that Jesus is in the order of Jesus. Rather, Jesus is following a pattern of someone else. And so Melchizedek is distinguished from Jesus. And in Hebrews 7, that is actually reinforced. Hebrews 7 is an explanation of what it means to be in the order of Melchizedek, reminding us that as we look at Genesis 14, it's laid out in introducing a king and introducing a priest in a way that is not found in any other place in the Old Testament. And those idiosyncrasies, those differences, so to speak, amplify what it means that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, what it means to qualify for this order. All that to say that Genesis 14 is not intended to talk about Melchizedek as a pre-incarnate Christ, but here's what it does. It establishes the order of Melchizedek in which Jesus will follow. And what do we learn about Melchizedek? Fundamentally, here's what we learn, that he is both king and priest, something that never could happen in Israel. Kings came from one line, the line of Judah. Priests came from a different line, the line of Levi. And the two never could meet together. Anytime you tried to merge king and priest back in those days, in the days of Israel, they could never be merged. God even set a curse against those who would transgress those boundaries. There's only one who can be in the line of Melchizedek because he is both king and priest the culmination of all leadership, the culmination of all authority. What do you start to learn about the seed? Here's what you learn. He is the culmination of all sovereign power. Why? Because he's the king. He will rule over all these kings, all the kings of the earth. He will have all authority given to him. That's what you learn. He's the ultimate king. But he's not just the king. He's also the what? The priest. What do you learn about the seed of Genesis 3.15? He will redeem. He will mediate he will atone for sin. And so you have the ultimate sovereign and you have the ultimate savior all in one. You have the culmination of every area of leadership. You have the culmination of all tasks and all authority and all power and all mediation all in one. 
Jesus is not just the pinnacle. He's the culmination of everything in the plan of God. That is what you are seeing in a nutshell in Genesis chapter 14. And God lays that out because that's the promise of a seed. That's the promise of a seed right before Abraham's eyes. He sees the model of that. And the question in Genesis 15 then is this, do you believe that? Do you believe that there will be a seed, king and priest? Do you believe that he will have all authority and power over the whole world and therefore the world will be blessed? Do you believe that he will atone for sin and make things right and rectify disobedience? Do you believe that, Abram? And Abram knows that this is a challenge because he doesn't have a child. He knows that it's a challenge because He physically can't have children. And God even reminds him that it will not be by human means. This goes back to the nature of faith. It is in God alone. But God says along that line, verse 4, he says, the one who comes out of your loins, that one is the one who will possess the land. That's the one whom will inherit everything for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And we have now the famous verse of Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as what? Righteousness. Now let's ask a question, two questions in fact. Who did Abraham believe in, and what did he believe him about? Well, he believed in God. Genesis 15, 6 makes that clear. He believed in God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. What did he believe God about? What has been the topic since chapter 14? What has been being established in theology since chapter 14? The promise of the seed. The promise of Genesis 3.15. And what do we call Genesis 3.15? The proto-euangelion. The first gospel. What did, what did Abram do in Genesis 15 verse 6? What was he believing about? He said to God, I believe that you... God alone will provide the promise of the seed. The promise of the seed with the theology established in Genesis 14, king and priest. The promise of the seed that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. The promise of the seed that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. What is Abraham basically saying? I believe the gospel. That is what he is saying here. People wonder, in the Old Testament, Did people really believe the gospel to be saved? It has always been that case from the very beginning. What do you think this verse in context is about? It is about Abraham trusting God alone for Christ alone. That is the nature of the gospel. And God established in Abraham the very foundation for what Israel was supposed to be all about, which was to proclaim the gospel and faith in God alone for that gospel. And indeed, it must be faith alone. Sadly, in the next chapter, in the next chapter, though God had assured Abraham that it is only by faith that you come to him. It is only by faith in the gospel about the seed promise that you are made right with him, as Genesis 15, 6 says, even though God has shown him that it is only by God alone that these promises will come to pass. Abraham is entering into the covenant by faith, but God reminds him about the nature of this covenant, that it is one that is accomplished by God alone. God, in the covenant ceremony seen in Genesis 15, knocks Abraham out puts him into deep sleep. Where have we heard about deep sleep before? Adam. It's parallel. 
God is saying, I'm continuing my plan with Adam. I'm continuing it through Abraham, through this covenant. And in this covenant, God has ordered Abraham to split apart these pieces. And here's the idea of the pieces. When you walk through the pieces in a normal covenant ceremony, you are saying, if I violate the promises, if I violate my side of the bargain, you can cut me in half like those pieces. Guess what Abraham's doing? He's asleep. Can he sleepwalk? No. He's asleep, deep sleep, better than, you know, deeper than any sleepwalking could ever accomplish. And all he sees then is God walk through the pieces. What's the message? God will do this. God will fulfill. It is truly by faith alone and God alone. Why? Because God will do it all. Whether you are ready or not or able or not, it's completely irrelevant. God will fulfill his promises. And so God has shown to Abraham over and over, it is by faith alone. It is by faith alone. God will do it alone. He will fulfill all the Abrahamic covenant alone. It is what we call unilateral, not dependent on man. It never has depended on man. Nevertheless, chapter 16, having done all of that, what does Abram do with his wife? They go to Hagar. They use human means to try to have a son. And it spells complete disaster for the rest of Israel's history. God teaches Abram the hard way. It's never by works. Never by works. Always by faith. Verse 17 seals that. Because in verse 17, Abram has the sign of circumcision, which is a reminder, the only way you come to Christ, you come and are right, you come to the covenant, it is by faith in God alone, about Christ alone. And in verses 18 through 19, we have the promise and proof of that. As God visits Abraham, even though he's failed and even though he's made mistakes, God is continuing to work on him and God gives assurance not only to Abram, but to his wife as well, changing Abraham's name to Abraham, changing Sarai's name to Sarah, visiting them, and then even saving Lot to demonstrate that God is the one who is faithful. God alone does all these different things. God alone will deliver, even though there will be harsh judgment for the sin of homosexuality in Genesis 19, God still will deliver because he's faithful to his people. And that same faithfulness of God alone doing all of this about the seed, Abraham has no ability whatsoever, is seen in chapter 20. In chapter 20, it's very fascinating. It might sound like a little bit of deja vu because when you read chapter 20, you say, this sounds a lot like chapter 12. Abraham's still claiming that his wife is his sister. And why, and here's the question though, why Does Sarai, at age, when Abraham's nearly 99 to 100 and Sarah's not too far behind, why would she be brought into a harem under the presumption that she can have children? Have you ever thought about that? What individual, what king would do that to Sarah? Would assume that about Sarah? Unless one of two things is true. One, Sarah looks young because God regenerated her so that she looked like she could have children, so that she looked like she was much younger than she was. That could happen. Or two, Sarah looked younger, prompting the king to do this because God never allowed her to age this whole time. You say, which one is it? I don't know. But I do know 
It's a miracle. And that's the entire point of chapter 20 in part. How does this happen and why is this here? It is a testimony. God alone. God alone did this. God alone somehow preserved or regenerated Sarah so that in the next chapter, what does it say? Then Yahweh visited Sarah just as he said, and Sarah what? Verse two, conceived. Conceived. It's all of God. All of God. He did the miraculous. And it is all of God. And we know then that the seed promise, it isn't because of what Abraham can do. It isn't because of what anything Abraham could achieve. Anytime he tried to use his own manipulation, it ends up with catastrophe, with ramifications that devastate the nation of Israel to this very day. It's always by God alone. And so God says, I've taught you the seed promise, which you believe in. That's how you're saved. That's how you're justified. Will you truly believe all the way to the end? And in verse chapter 22, there's a test, a final test to see if Abraham really will believe. If Abraham will truly and fully and totally and alone trust in God. We know that everything is predicated. The seed promise is predicated upon Isaac. We know that every promise in continuity is predicated upon Isaac, land, seed, and blessing, because if it just stops with Abraham, everything stops. Abraham has no promise realized at this moment. So God says, will you be willing to kill your own son, to put everything in jeopardy, everything on the line, and on top of that, it is your son, speaking of which, notice the language here. I love what the rabbis do with it. Look at chapter 22, verse 2. Then he said, take your son. And Abraham's thinking, this is how the rabbis read it, I got Isaac and Ishmael, your only son. I got two. The one you love. I love them both. Isaac. Oh, are you willing to sacrifice it all, to trust in God when the odds seem impossible because you're confident in God, because you know not yourself, but because you know your God and you know the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question here. And Abraham, it just says, it's so amazing. Abraham keeps walking. He keeps walking. Verse 3. He continues his journey. Verse six, he continues his journey. Faith perseveres. And how do we know how much faith and the nature of his faith and the nature of his confidence and commitment to the Lord? We see it in verse five. It is exactly what the author of Hebrews says. The author of Hebrews says that Abraham knew that God could even raise his son from the dead. How do we know that from this text? Look at verse five. He's talking to his young men and he says, stay here with the donkeys, I and the lad, we will go. We will worship. And what's the last phrase of verse five, chapter 22? We will return. What did he know? Even if I must sacrifice Isaac on the altar, we will still return. We will come back. Why? Because my God can overcome death and my God can do the impossible and he will not break a promise. If Isaac is the one who continues the line of seed, it will continue through him no matter what. And so God tests Abraham and he nearly sacrifices Isaac. And at that moment that he's about to do it, God tells him to stop and says, now I know you fear me. That's what he says. Because God alone is everything 
to Abraham. That's what's going on. And what does this remind us? It's faith alone in God alone for the gospel alone. That's what's being established in these chapters. It is about the seed promise and that God will advance that seed promise. And the way that we receive it is not by manipulation. It is by faith. It is by faith. Faith alone for Christ alone. Let me put it this way, and this is so important. God reminds Abraham that the way you, who you believe in matters. You don't put faith in your works and you don't even put faith in your faith. This is a problem sometimes in our circles, in our lives. We have doubts or we know somebody who has doubts and, and we ask them, well, how do you know you're saved? When you say, how do you know you're saved? That question is really asking in truth, who do you believe in? Where are you putting your faith in? But if you say, how do I know I'm saved? And you answer it this way, I know I'm saved because I believe. What have you just done? You put faith in your faith. You put faith in your self. And now do you see why people, they just get so distraught about this and it's a downward destructive cycle because when you set your eyes on yourself and if you're the reason for your salvation, then you're gonna start having to ask questions. Is my faith good enough? Do I have enough faith? Is my faith valid? Was my first profession good enough? Was it worthy enough? Was it excellent enough? Was it genuine enough? Was it sincere enough? Was it powerful enough? Because all you're doing is focusing on yourself. Why are we saved? Because of Christ. Because we have a God who can raise the dead. Because we have a God who sent the seed to conquer sin and death, to die for us. When you answer that way, your eyes stop looking at yourself and on who? On Christ. And when you start looking on Christ, then your confidence is in him and not yourself. And not only is your confidence in him, but he begins to change your life. Abraham believed God about the promise of a seed. We do the same thing. Do not put your faith in your works, nor your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Christ. Well, blessing, blessing. We know that faith alone saves, but faith never comes alone. Faith alone saves, but faith never comes alone. James 2 reminds us of that, that faith always produces works. And those works don't save. They're just evidence of faith. It's like if you had a medical procedure and the doctor said, hey, if the medical procedure is right and true, you're going to feel a lot better. Well, when you feel a lot better, it, that's not what caused the medical procedure, When you feel a lot better, that's not what caused the medical difference. It's the medical procedure that did that, but the evidence of its successfulness and its validity is in the fact that you feel better. Likewise, works don't save you ever. They're just the evidence that proves the validity of what already took place. Faith alone saves but faith never comes alone. It always has fruitfulness. And that's what you see in Abraham's life at the end in chapters 23 through 25. You see that God who has been pounding into Abraham by faith, by faith, by faith, he accomplishes it. He accomplishes it. And it leaves an indelible imprint into Abraham's life. 
And Abraham then strives, even though it's against all the odds, to leave a legacy behind, a leave a legacy about land and seed and blessing. In chapter 23, Abraham, his wife dies. You say, wow, that was sudden. Yeah, the rabbis even think that it was because Isaac told his mom what had happened in chapter 22. That's why she died. Like, how was your trip, son? Well, uh, mom, it was crazy. I didn't think I'd come back alive. Oh, son, you're such an exaggerator. You know, dad was going to kill me. Oh, I know you've had problems with your father, but it's never come to that. And then Abraham comes along and says, no, honey, really, that, that, that's what it was. That was what was going to happen. And he tells her the story, and she has a heart attack, and she dies. That's why chapter 23 happens, according to the rabbis. Now, we don't know that for a fact, but it, there does seem to be uh, some immediate correlation in the narrative structure. But in any case, Sarah passes away full of faith at the end. And Abraham wants to buy a burial plot. And there's a reason why he wants to buy a burial plot. Because this whole time, Abraham has not owned a single piece of land. He's not owned a single piece of land. God says, this is your land, but he hasn't owned anything. And so Abraham engages in a negotiation to say, I will prove to my offspring and to the world, this is our land. I will leave a legacy for generations to come, a demonstration that this is the land that God had promised. And so he, he purchases the land after intense negotiations with the Hittites. And you say, how much did he pay for it? Modern day equivalent, some people estimate on the low end, on the low end, $2 million. $2 million. You say, how big was the property? Smaller than this stage. $2 million. Now, I know that in California, real estate is inflated. But this is a little bit excessive, especially since it's not 2023 AD. It's like 2066 BC. But why does he do it? Because he believes God. Because he believes God. Faith works. He put his money where his mouth is. And it's not just that he leaves the legacy of land. He leaves the legacy of a seed. Chapter 24. He knows that Isaac needs to have children. He believes that that will happen. He believes that this is the beginning of the line that culminates in the Messiah. So he secures and he desires to secure a wife for Isaac. And the way it all happens is a demonstration of legacy a legacy of of faith. His servant goes out, and it says in the text, I love this, that he went out with 10 camels. And you say, why does the Bible mention 10 camels? Because of the request that the servant's going to ask, that a woman would water and give water to all the camels. Think about this. Let's do some math really quick. 10 camels, each of them drinks about 30 gallons apiece, assuming there are a certain kind of camel prevalent at that time in the Middle East. And 30 gallons times 10 is 300 300 gallons of water. Now, assuming that a woman carried a three-gallon jug, which is a big assumption because that's actually kind of generous, but let's just do it for the sake of easy math. So how many trips would the woman have to do? How many trips would the woman have to do to water the camels? 100 trips. That's no easy task. And so the servant is asking for a lot, but he trusts the God of Abraham. He trusts that that God will do it alone. And you know what? Before the servant even stops praying, Rebecca walks out and she says, can I water the camels? And here's what's so amazing. I love this. You know what the text says, verse 10? It says this, she ran. Look, 
if I was carrying a jug, I'd walk. I'm already doing you a favor. It can wait. And by walk round two, I would quit. It's too heavy, this jar of water. Too much distance, dragging it from the well and everything. What is she? She's a bionic woman. And you know what the text says? The servant stared in silence. Well, no kidding. I would too. That's amazing. Because of what the Lord had done. You see, God instilled in Abraham faith. And that faith did work. Work that secured a land. Work that secured a seed for the seed. And in chapter 25, here's what it says. Abraham gave all that to Isaac. Right there, what do you have? He passed on the land. He passed it on to a seed. And by passing it on, that's a what? A blessing. A blessing right there. And Abraham leaves it all. Faith alone saves. But faith never comes alone. Abraham does things that are just astounding. You put your money where your mouth is. You, you ask for so much. You do so much for generations that you will never see. Why? Because he believed God. He was absolutely confident in him. All of this is an example and a demonstration of exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. That Abraham, hope against hope, he believed. His hope and his faith defied all human expectation. And he knew his body, it says in Romans 4, was as good as dead. But yet he still believed. Why? Because Romans 4 says, because he grew strong in the promises of God. What is faith? Faith says God alone, no matter what. Despite human expectation and despite human experience, I believe in God alone. And when you have that faith alone and truly Christ alone, that faith, though alone, will never be alone because that will drive you to do anything that even defies human expectation and human experience because you know your God and you know what he has commanded you and you know he will never leave you and you know he can even raise the dead. So whatever he expects and whatever he demands, we will do because we trust in a God like that and he is the one who is driving us. You know, there is this fallacy in the, about the Old Testament that people say, oh, the Old Testament was all about works. Nothing could be further from the truth. Where does Paul go to establish faith alone? He doesn't go back to Jesus, although he could. He doesn't go back to Isaiah, though he could. He doesn't go back to Haggai, though he could. He goes ultimately all the way back to who? Abraham. Why? Because from that point, God had already established about these precious promises that have advanced redemptive history, land, seed, and blessing, that the message to all the world is that this will be accomplished not by works, not by human might, but by God alone. Therefore, it must be by faith alone, and all the glory goes to that God. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this message of of faith alone from the scriptures that magnifies that you do it all. May it be that in our lives that we rest in you alone, that you carry us through, that we rely on you and therefore are bold in our obedience, having every confidence in you. May we truly understand these concepts and truly then exalt you and give you all the credit as it is due because faith alone means you alone. 
And in the end, our confession is, not I, but Christ in me. To you be all the glory in your name we pray. Amen.